2: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2 and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn more. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert. I know you've got a love for older aircraft. So I wanted to start off talking today about an aircraft I I think I know you've mentioned it before. I think you've got a spot in your heart for it. It's the B-17 Flying Fortress. Oh, of course. Yeah. So this was a gigantic four-engine heavy bomber developed by Boeing that was used by the United States in World War II primarily for long-range high-altitude bombing raids against Germany and Nazi-occupied targets in Europe. Uh, And to a lesser extent, it was used some in the Pacific Theater. Oh, and I guess just to clarify what I said a minute ago, I mean when I say you've got a spot in your heart for this, I don't mean like you love war and bombing and killing. (laughs) I I mean that like I know that you – uh, have a kind of love for the aesthetics of airplane design.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, my my dad was a World War II buff, and he, uh, and, and more importantly, he was uh, he was really into creating uh, to working on scale model kits. Yeah, and mostly World War II scale models. And so the B seventeen uh, w- was certainly a plane that was one of his favorites, and mm. you know he was always telling me about it. And he had like a, a prized model of it, like probably like you know his the the masterpiece of his uh, his scale modeling time. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, I grew up um, amid these depictions of the B-17. I mean it's it's a very iconic plane um, and it's the third most produced bomber of all time. It was an icon of U.S. air superiority and, uh, and it's a highly successful design and they were used for various post-war purposes as well. And there's actually – there's somewhere in the neighborhood of like I want to say 10 – uh, B-17s that are actually still airworthy? Oh, yeah. I think I was reading that there are like some that are
0: actually still in flight somewhere. Or? Yeah.
3: Well, they're kept, you know, in an in, in airworthy condition. Yeah. I mean, it's harder to keep an older plane like this in airworthy condition. But right. but with a plane uh, that where, where the design is solid mm. and it has this iconic status in, uh, you know, in American aviation history, you're going to, to – to, to to keep those going as long as you can. And even the ones that aren't airworthy, there are a number of just fantastically restored
0: um, B-17s in museums, aviation museums around the world. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, – so it was a strategically important aircraft, right? I mean so it was this heavily armored aircraft that was uh, – played a huge role in in allied victory in Europe. And it was it was sort of famous for like taking a beating in the course of its mission before returning to base intact and landing with lots of visible combat damage, right? And I, I guess this is tied up in the idea of the, that it's called the Flying Fortress.
3: Yeah, and then again, we don't want to romanticize – the, the this weapon of war too much. It was used to kill a lot of people. Oh, of course, yeah. And a lot of people died flying them. Uh, but just from a purely design standpoint, it is fascinating because they're they, they were they really was this flying fortress. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that you you have this this vessel this uh, this this airplane that you're sending up into the sky, sending it into air, into a, into enemy territory, uh, terrain bombs down on them, and then you want to have it protected. Right. So of course the main thing you can do is have if you have fighter planes to accompany it, yeah. uh, faster, subtle uh, death machines that can fly about and pick off things that are trying to interfere with the, the bombing fleet. But uh, on top of that, you need to have some guns on, on that flying fortress, on your bomber uh, to protect it. But since the the, the, the bomber itself is not going to be like super maneuverable, especially compared to fighters that are coming up to intercept it, yeah. uh, what you need to do is you need to have all your directions covered. You have some machine guns poking out the front. You have tail gunner in the back. You have a turret on the top. Uh, you have side gunners, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm. But one of the defense features of the B-17, I, what you're getting to is now famous or maybe more importantly uh, uh, infamous it's the ball <laughs> turret the the lower turret that is this pair of manned machine guns inside a plexiglass dome or Ball on the bottom of the aircraft. Yeah,
3: it it's I'm sure it looked science fictiony at the time, uh-huh. and it still looks science fiction-y when you see it now. If you if you're not expecting it, uh, the, so this is the Sperry Ball turret, and it was only introduced in the in the B17E series, but it was included on all, in all subsequent uh, series of the B17 bomber. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also deployed in the B24 Liberator, which is another heavy bomber, and then a couple a couple of other planes. But yeah, it was super small. It's so small that you typically had to pinpoint a particularly small um, adult airman to go into the ball.
0: And then on top – It was in a comfy uh, – not comfy. Uh, the exact opposite of comfy. Cozy, snug, tight. Right. Yeah, in fact, he is essentially
3: in a fetal position the whole time. Only instead of of having all of the the warmth and safety that you know comes with the idea of returning to the womb, you are not you are not in the womb in the ball turret. You are not even in the middle of the plane. You are uh, you are beneath the plane. You are sort of halfway hanging out underneath the, the, this this bomber, uh, exposed uh, to any uh, interceptor aircraft that are flying up underneath. And hopefully, you're going to be able to do something about it with your machine guns. And if something goes wrong, well, the the bad news is there's there's not actually room in the ball for you to wear your parachute. Uh, in, in some cases, they would leave the parachute uh, uh, just above them
0: in the main fuselage. Uh-huh. Or if there was room, you might bring it in strapped to your chest. That's going to come back in just a minute. So I, I've thought about the ball turret a lot, not because uh, I, I know nearly as much about a about older aircraft as you Robert but because specifically because of a poem that I read for the first time many years ago that it's just a five-line poem by the American poet Randall Jarrell called The Death of the Ball Turret Gunner it was mm. written in 1945 about his World War II experience and it it captures this uh the this sort of cramped terror here it goes From my mother's sleep, I fell into the state, and I hunched in its belly till my wet fur froze. Six miles from earth, loosed from its dream of life, I woke to black flack and the nightmare fighters. When I died, they washed me out of the turret with a hose.
3: Oh, man, that is rough. I don't think I'd heard that before. Um, uh, I, I, I should throw in like the a couple of things. So first of all, the turret does like uh, rotate and move around. It's like a little carnival ride, right, yeah. underneath the the plane, so you can aim, right? You yeah, know, you
0: need more degrees of freedom to chase the the moving targets that are coming at you from below, right? And
3: and on top of that. I cannot begin to imagine how terrifying it it really was. Like I, I get a little anxious when I fly in general. Uh-huh. And uh, to imagine myself like slung below this uh this you know rattling warplane uh
0: crammed into a clear ball yeah, on the bottom just of the exposed. plane exposed
3: and then if you have like you know all of these uh you know all the chaos of war, the explosions happening all around you. Um I recently watched uh, Hulu's adaptation of Mm -hmm. Catch-22, which is a different aircraft um, and uh, no ball turret, but it does a great job of just showing... Uh, you know, immersing you in this idea of just how terrifying a bomber run was. Even in in Catch Twenty Two, they're not even dealing with interceptor craft; they're just dealing with anti aircraft fire. Uh-huh. And it's they just do a wonderful job of just making you feel the sheer terror of the characters uh, flying into battle without any, you know a bunch of heroic uh, nonsense uh, you know labeled ladled on top of it because ultimately that's what Catch
0: Twenty Two is is about. Right. Dispelling the hero myth yeah. with, a, with a healthy dose of absurdity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, does, I want to talk about one of those terrifying experiences and use that to connect to the subject of the rest of today's episode. So uh, let's look at the story of one particular ball turret gunner. During World War II, he was an American staff sergeant named Alan, either Magee or McGee, M A G E E. I'm going to call him McGee for the rest of the episode here. So in January of 1943, Staff Sergeant McGee was manning the turret of a B-17 that had been nicknamed Snap, Crackle, Pop. Uh, Don't know what that comes from, but I have to imagine it's from probably bullets hitting the plane. Oh. Don't know, but that's my guess. So the plane was on a bombing run over an area of Nazi-occupied France. When it suddenly took heavy fire from German fighters and it began to break apart in the air at about 20,000 feet or about 6,700 meters up. And in the chaos, as the airplane was coming apart in the atmosphere, McGee managed to escape his ball turret and jump out of the falling and and, uh, separating plane parts. But he didn't have a parachute. He had not been wearing one probably because he couldn't fit into the ball with it on – so he's outside the plane falling at 20,000 feet. So you would think obviously this is just certain death. You right, know, yeah, this just would be no way you'd survive. You're just
3: you're just dead in the air basically.
0: Yeah, falling without a parachute for 20,000 feet, which is about 6.1 kilometers in altitude. There's no way to survive that. But strangely, McGee didn't die. He lost consciousness during the fall probably due to a lack of oxygen, right? Because up at that atmosphere – uh, up at that altitude, the atmosphere is thinner. You can't get enough oxygen so you pass out. But then he woke up. He woke up hours later on the ground to find himself a prisoner of war being treated by German medics. And he had a few broken bones and he had cuts all over his body. But he was alive. Apparently, the way McGee survived had to do with how he landed. Instead of hitting the ground, McGee had just by luck crashed through a glass ceiling in a train station at St. Nazaire, and the impact of crashing through the glass must have slowed his fall enough that he was not killed when he hit the floor below – And so as unbelievable as this story is, McGee is not the only one. There are actually lots of interesting, fascinating, long-fall survival stories in which people fall what would normally be absolutely lethal distances without a parachute, but somehow manage to survive in one way or another. And that's what we wanted to talk about today. And and it should, we should drive home like we're we're de- we're dealing with distances uh, here that are
3: almost that seem almost absolutely lethal. Yeah, and you certainly do not have to fall far at all to suffer a fatal injury. Oh no, you can easily die from a ten or twenty foot fall. But the, but the, but, the, but they're falling from 10,000, well, ten thousand, twenty thousand feet. Yeah, it, it just seems astounding. It seems unreal. Like. To survive such a fall, you would just have to become just instantly hyper-religious, right? You just have to assume uh, angels appeared and uh, and took your unconscious body
0: down to the earth. Well, a lot of people do kind of go to those miraculous explanations, but it turns out that there are some – pretty consistent, not totally consistent, but there are some common physical characteristics of the types of falls that people survive from. Uh, It has to do with how you fall, how you land, where you land. And so that's what we wanted to explore for the rest of the day. Now, one thing that's funny is that like it seems like falling out of an airplane must be so much worse than just say falling off of a really tall building or something but in fact that's not the case if if you are falling long enough to achieve what's called terminal velocity we'll explain more about that uh, in a bit uh, it's a speed that's not a not a constant but it's going to vary depending on who you are what you're what you weigh what you're shaped like what you're wearing you know how all that kind of stuff as long as you fall far enough to achieve that and that might just be you know a, a few hundred meters then you then you're basically falling as fast as you're going to fall and actually falling from an airplane isn't any worse and in some crazy ways could actually be better uh, so, but anyway, we'll, we'll come back to all that. I wanted to talk about a few other known cases from history. So, one case uh, of somebody who fell out of an airplane and survived is Christine McKenzie. She didn't actually fall out of an airplane; she jumped. Uh, she's an experienced South African skydiver who had already jumped more than a hundred times when both her main parachute and her backup parachute failed on the same free fall in August 2004. So she fell about 11,000 feet and survived by, instead of hitting the ground directly, she first, hit some suspended power lines before impact. And sort of like the glass ceiling in McGee's fall, the tension of the power lines is thought to have absorbed a lot of the energy of her fall and slowed her down in the process so that when she finally hit the ground, she ended up with only a broken pelvis. Her fall lasted about 45 seconds. So let's let's entertain
3: belief in guardian angels again for a second. Uh-huh. Can you imagine the the sort of the scenario where you're falling and then the, the angel appears? And says, "Look, I know this looks bad, but don't worry. Uh, you're headed towards some uh, high tension wires. <laughs> Everything's going to be
0: fine." I just assume I would be—I would assume I would be torn in half. You know? Uh-huh. Uh, well, I mean, I'm—I'm su- I'm sure it depends on like how you hit them and all yeah. that. Uh, a- another name. This one comes up uh, a lot. It's a very famous case. This is Vesna Volovich. Some of the details of the Volović case have been disputed. I'm not going to get into those whole disputes. I'm just going to talk about the the version that's most often reported. So Vesna Volović was a Serbian flight attendant on a DC-9 that was in the air over the Czech Republic in 1972 – when the cabin exploded, probably due to a bomb from a terrorism attack. Uh, She fell more than 10,100 meters or more than 33,000 feet without a parachute. And she suffered severe injuries and broken bones and was in a coma for weeks, but she survived. And the question is how? Well, her survival is usually attributed to the fact that while most of the rest of the passengers were blown out of the cabin when the fuselage broke apart – Volovich was pinned inside by a food cart and possibly by another member of the crew or a passenger and so she's stuck inside the fuselage and then the broken part of the fuselage in which uh, she was stuck just happened to land on a snowy tree-covered hillside and it's believed that the trees and the snow cushion the impact – uh, after she woke up, she had no memory of the crash and she lived until 2016. She's often cited as the record holder for the survivor of the longest fall without a parachute.
3: Wow, that, that is incredible. And, and also I, I just want to apologize to uh, any other nervous flyers out there who are listening to this. Hopefully you are not listening to this at the airport.
0: Oh, <laughs> maybe we should have warned you.
3: Now, uh, you know, if, if you if you weren't aware uh, by now, if you didn't pause the episode by now, then I, I guess maybe you, you do need this episode to make it through your flight.
0: Well, I, I'm sure you've heard it a million times before and it probably doesn't help with your fear. But it is a fact that flying is extremely safe. Commercial flying these days mm-hmm. is extremely safe. Yes. If, you know, if you are on a commercial jet with like an accredited pilot and all that, it, like your, your chances of having something bad happen are extremely low.
3: So stick that in the logical side of your brain (laughs) that's probably already arguing with the illogical side that is the whole reason you have uh, the nerves anyway.
0: Let's go with one more example here. This is a survival story of uh, Julianne Kepke. Now, Julianne Diller, she's a German woman or is a German woman who as a teenager survived a plane crash in the Amazon in 1971 from an altitude of over three kilometers after a plane was struck by lightning. Uh, she was the lone survivor of the crash and then she not only survived the crash from, uh, from over three kilometers of altitude – after that, she had to navigate her way through the rainforest to find help with no supplies except basically a bag of candy. Oh my goodness. And after searching for 10 days, she found help from a group of loggers and was taken back to civilization for medical treatment and she's still alive today.
3: Wow. So at this point you're probably wondering, well how? Uh, casting the angels aside, what are the what are the logical, real life, scientific answers? Uh, You know, behind these survival stories where we're going to take a break and when we come back, we will discuss just that. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah,
3: that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day.
0: All right, we're back. So, Robert, you want to look at the physics of falling from a great height? Let's do it. Okay, so falling from a great height can kill you in a number of ways. Uh, I mean, just not to get too graphic, but one problem would be like, what if you fall on a spike or something? There, you know, there are all these sc- sort of like specific cases of what can happen to you when you hit the ground. But and
3: that's the key, right? Right. The, the fall itself, I mean, that's that's easy enough to do. Yeah. Um, and surviving the fall is one thing; it's surviving the impact. Uh, That is the problem.
0: Right. I mean, no matter where you land, the main problem that that you're going to encounter is going to be the difference between how fast you were falling and how suddenly you stop. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what happens when you fall from an incredible altitude? Well, we know there is gravity, right? There's an attraction between the Earth and your body due to gravity. And gravity accelerates you relentlessly toward the center of the Earth. Not just when you're falling, but even right now. No matter where you are. Gravity is relentlessly accelerating you toward the center of the Earth, and you will continue to accelerate toward the center of the Earth until something like the ground or water or the air provides a compensating resistance to stop you from, from going faster toward the center of the Earth. So that's probably the ground that's doing that to you right now.
3: Uh, yeah, I recently was thinking a bit about this when I was jumping off of a, a, a high dive. Um, and I had been a long time since I jumped off a high dive, Mm -hmm. but I I was just really struck by just the feeling of, of, of being wanted by gravity, like you, you really, you really feel it. Uh, you know, more so than off of just a normal board. You feel yourself accelerating. You feel yourself, uh, you know, pulled down with uh, with dramatic speed toward the surface of the water.
0: Well, yeah, it's kind of weird to think about, but the force of gravity and the force of acceleration feel exactly the same to us. They are indistinguishable. They act the same way on our bodies. This is why you can use acceleration to provide artificial gravity in space, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just by, like, continuously accelerating a capsule or providing angular momentum acceleration in a circular pattern you can pretty much perfectly simulate what gravity is like so if you're on or near the earth's surface you are sort of permanently on an invisible train that wants to begin accelerating straight down at 9.8 meters per second per second and will just keep going 9.8 meters per second faster every second and it's always going to start chugging unless there's something pushing you back pushing you to hold you in place Now, there's one physics fact we all, I think, learned in school, which can be kind of confusing here. So we need to make a sort of obvious but important distinction. The acceleration due to gravity is the same for all falling objects near Earth's surface. That's 9.8 meters per second per second, no matter what you are, what kind of – object you're talking about. But that does not mean that all objects fall at the same rate. This is obvious because of the effects of drag caused by air resistance acting on the falling object. So this is pretty obvious when you drop a feather and a hammer side by side. Obviously the hammer hits the ground first unless, say, you're on the moon where there is no atmosphere. And this is actually a a demonstration that was put on during a moonwalk by the American astronaut David Scott in 1971. They were out on the... Have you seen the a video of this, Robert? I
3: have, yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's impressive. There also have been some recent videos uh, uh, that have been uh, put together using a vacuum chamber. Oh, yeah. Uh, but they're also just as... Uh, is fascinating to watch because it seems – it defies expectations because our expectations are based on
0: a world of atmosphere. Exactly right. Yeah, and the, and the vacuum chamber in, on Earth works just as good because it's nothing about the gravitational properties of the moon that make the uh, feather fall just as fast as the hammer. It's the fact, like you say, that there is no atmosphere to push up against it, uh, no, no air to slow down the feather. Uh, by the way, I, I looked it up. It was a falcon feather.
3: Huh. I wonder, without knowing the answer, if, uh, if there was like a committee that decided that. Where they're like, what kind of feather are we sending on the mission? <laughs> and uh, someone's like, oh, it should be the turkey. Oh, it, should be a, it should be an American eagle. Uh, Just like in 1776. Yeah, yeah, basically
0: have the same conversation. They had a song about it, The Dove. <laughs> uh, so anyway, if you're near Earth's surface and you're falling – Gravity is going to keep accelerating you faster and faster until the drag of the atmosphere on your body, which we call air resistance, stops you from speeding up anymore. And there you level out at a top speed. And it's never going to be an exactly perfect level top speed. You sort of approach a top speed and get within 99 percent of it and then wobble up and down. Uh, and we call this terminal velocity velocity. Now, exactly how fast terminal velocity is depends on a number of factors. It's the shape of the falling object, like a one-pound dart will fall faster than a one-pound blanket, right? Mm. Because the blanket spreads out. It catches the air. Uh, The weight of the falling object, obviously heavier objects have more power to overcome the air resistance forces on them. Uh, The position or orientation of the falling object, so imagine you drop a plate and you could drop it flat side down or you could drop it thin side down and that's going to make a difference. Uh, Another thing is what medium the object is falling through and how dense the medium is. For example, you can fall faster higher in the atmosphere because the gas around you is thinner. This is something that these high-altitude jumpers have experienced, like Felix Baumgartner, you know, went up super high in the atmosphere and, and jumped and was going faster earlier in the jump but got slowed down as the atmosphere got thicker closer to the ground. So based on all these kinds of factors, for an adult human falling through the atmosphere with no parachute, terminal velocity is going to vary a lot. A common figure I've seen cited for an adult human is that terminal velocity might be somewhere around 195 kilometers per hour, which is about 54 meters per second or about 120 miles per hour. And this seems to be the case maybe if you are trying to fall as slowly as possible, say in a belly flop position, which sort of turns your body into a bio parachute. Right, because you try to spread out and catch as much wind as possible. Uh, But I was reading an article by Fraser Cain at uh, Universe Today, and he claimed that skydivers who orient their bodies like a dart, so streamlined headfirst and so forth, can accelerate to a much higher terminal velocity of more like 400 kilometers per hour, which is around 111 meters per second, which is like double the speed of the belly flop orientation we were just talking about. And again, of course, it varies depending on other factors about your body, your clothes, and all that. Another thing that's going to vary is how far you have to fall before you reach or not reach, but approach terminal velocity. Uh, again, this is going to vary according to all these individual factors about your body and how you're falling and all that. Uh, but I've come across some wildly different estimates. So one article I was reading in The Guardian by Ian Sample consulted Howie Weiss, who is a professor of mathematics at Penn State University, to calculate the rules specifically for the case of Vesna uh, Volovic, the, the Serbian flight attendant who survived the like 33,000-foot fall. According to Weiss, quote, a free-falling 120-pound or 54-kilogram woman would have a terminal velocity of about 38 meters per second, uh, and uh, and she would achieve 95% of the speed in about seven seconds. This means that she would be falling about as fast as possible after falling for only 167 meters or about 550 feet. Uh, Other estimates for human terminal velocity take significantly more time and distance, but... Suffice to say that if you fall out of an airplane at cruising altitude, there is no doubt that you will end up falling as fast as you possibly can, and it will be very fast. It might be, you know, between 200 and 400 kilometers per hour. An interesting side note is just uh, some anecdotes I was reading about uh, about skydiving that mention what it feels like when you approach terminal velocity on a fall – Like apparently the body sensation is different from the sensation during uh, that period of constant acceleration that we're used to in a fall. Normally we don't ever reach terminal velocity, so we don't know what it feels like. So we think of a fall as this feeling of weightlessness, you know, the free fall feeling. Uh, but, But apparently once you get near terminal velocity, I've seen some people claim you sort of feel your weight again. You sort of feel as if you are resting on a cushion made of wind. Does that make sense? Like because you're not accelerating anymore. Right. Right.
3: Yeah. Because, l- like I say, when I when I jump off jumped off the high dive a couple of weeks ago, I definitely felt acceleration. I did not feel weightless. I felt very weighted. Um, but yeah, if you're reaching the point where where you're no longer accelerating, yeah, it seems like you would you would reach this point where yeah,
0: everything is normalized mm-hmm. at least for a few more seconds. Well, there you might. This is interesting because I. Sometimes feel like the words feel that way too. But you're sort of inverting the weightless versus weighted feeling, right? Like do astronauts who are forever accelerating because they're forever in free fall, do they feel weightless or weighted? I guess they would say weightless. But uh, yeah, you could also think of it as like you feel weightless when your body is supported by something.
3: Yeah. Or if you just stop to contemplate gravity, you can start feeling
0: rather weighted,
3: you know, because <laughs> again, these forces are acting on us at all, all times. Uh, we just uh, are used to a certain level.
0: As we brought up a minute ago, we know from lots of human experience that a fall from just like 10, 20, 30 feet can easily kill a person, depending on how they land, and in those cases you wouldn't be traveling anywhere near your terminal velocity. So obviously hitting the ground from a fall of a few hundred meters or more is going to cause massive trauma to the body and will almost always result in death. But like how? What actually happens here in the body? Well. Since falling from a great height applies massive impact force to your body, when you hit the ground, there are a lot of different ways for the fall to kill you. But apparently the most common fatal injuries caused by a fall uh, are arterial damage due to the breaking of the spine. Uh, Sorry to get graphic here for a second, but this is just for the sake of specificity. Uh, The article in The Guardian quotes Sean Hughes, who's a professor of surgery at Imperial College London, who says that, quote most people who fall from a great height die because they fracture their spine near the top and so transect the aorta which carries blood out of the heart and so obviously that pretty clear why that would kill you that that's very bad
3: all right so we have uh, we have de- we've described the problem here of falling from a great height and and, nece- and by necessity impacting the ground uh we're going to take a break when we come back we're going to discuss what the survival tactics actually are uh, you know, to, and to the extent to which you can actually deploy them during
0: freefall. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right, And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. All right, we're back. So obviously any fall from a great height is going to be really dangerous and it would probably kill anybody. So these high altitude survival stories are very unlikely and you should not get it in your head that you can like jump out of an airplane and survive. But there are some factors that appear to increase a person's odds of surviving a great fall out of the sky, at least based on the anecdotes we have. So let's talk about them. Uh, I wanted to refer to a, a couple of pretty good articles I found on this subject, sort of collecting the opinions of experts over the years on long freefalls. One was a 2010 article in Popular Mechanics by Dan Keppel. One was a, uh, m- a more recent article in NPR by Paul Chisholm. And the uh, the Paul Chisholm article in NPR spoke to an associate professor of physics at Southeastern Louisiana State University named Rhett Alon, who uh, pointed out that obviously – Human survival of long free falls is not something you can run real-life experiments on. You you can't push people out of airplanes to test it out. So we can only reason uh, based on sort of hypothetical scenarios and by analyzing the anecdotes of people who actually survive accidental falls. So we're sort of – you know, it's kind of like digging up fossils. It's like we're stuck with whatever data happened to have already – you know, been available to us.
3: Yeah, and it's also it's kind of a it's very much a like a, it's a modern problem that's presented itself. You know, I mean, mm. uh, we've barely had airplanes, and uh, you know, to a, to a certain extent, we've barely had uh, had uh, had the, the sort of massive structures or even access to some of the massive features to uh, to engage in these types of falls to begin with.
0: Sure. All right. So first question: How to fall? Uh, Keppel points out that you're you're actually probably better off falling out of a plane than falling out of a tall building from a height of more than a few hundred feet, because you're gonna reach similarly high speeds either way, but if you fall out of, out of a building, you don't really have any time, right? You're gonna hit the ground pretty much before you know it. Right. Whereas if you fall out of the sky a few thousand meters up, you may actually have more time to plan your descent.
3: Yeah, like the figures I was I was looking at were that uh, if you were to ju- if you jump out of a plane at ten thousand feet, you basically have one minute, mm-hmm. uh, not counting you know any you know types of chutes you would deploy, et cetera. But you basically have a minute of uh, of, um, of of descent.
0: Mm-hmm. Now there are some downsides there too, though. Jumping out of a plane, uh, if you're higher up in the atmosphere, it's very possible that you could pass out due to hypoxia. Mm-hmm thinner atmosphere your your lack of access to oxygen means that you black out and then maybe you know you, you are not able to actually plan your descent at all uh, because you because you're unconscious of course i don't know if there's anything you can do about that other than if you you know you always want to have an oxygen mask with you that that doesn't seem very practical <laughs> Uh, the Massachusetts-based amateur historian Jim Hamilton has collected reports of freefall survivors and noticed a few trends about survival rates in the different ways that people fall. So, passengers from airplanes he finds are more likely to survive if they arrive at the ground among other wreckage. He calls these people "wreckage riders." <laughs> That's that they're more likely to survive that than if they fall free of the plane and hit the ground independently. Uh, he's found almost three times as many cases of people surviving from airplane altitude as a, as a wreckage rider than he has of people surviving a solo fall like Alan McGee did or uh, McGee did. And it seems that like airplane seats and parts of the airplane fuselage and so forth can sometimes have a pr- protective cushioning effect at the point of impact. So like – so you hit the ground and sometimes these things can absorb some of the uh, energy or or slow your deceleration.
3: All right. So if at all possible, be a wreckage rider.
0: Right. Uh, Chisholm points out that it, not like you have any control over this, but it helps, free, helps you to be smaller uh, because a person's falling speed is determined by this negotiation between gravity and air resistance. Gravity, of course, accelerates your fall, but air resistance slows you down and puts a limit on how much gravity can accelerate you. So as a human increases in size, this is going to affect the, the falling body equation in two different ways. It will increase your weight, which helps gravity overcome air resistance and makes your terminal velocity faster, pulls you faster. But it uh, will also increase your surface area. So as you increase your surface area, you increase your drag and function more like a parachute. So you just have to look into the math of which of these factors wins out as like a normal like mammal becomes bigger. And it turns out the gravity wins out. Even though you increase your surface area, the extra weight makes a bigger difference. So like if you drop an ant off your roof, it's probably going to be fine when it mm-hmm. hits the ground. You drop a horse off your roof, not so much.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean um... – yeah, insects and other invertebrates are uh, are notoriously great fallers. They can fall from great heights and and suffer no damage.
0: Yeah, uh, there's a quote from J. B. S. Haldane in writing in 1928, who wrote, uh, "You can drop a mouse down a thousand-yard mine shaft, and on arriving at the bottom, it gets a slight shock and walks away. A rat is killed, a man is broken, a horse splashes." Ugh. Uh, Keppel's article notes also along similar lines that it may help to be a child. Uh, For some reason, many of the survivors of airplane-related freefall are children. And this is obviously anecdotal, but the trend probably indicates something – He writes, "Quote the Federal Aviation Agency study notes that kids, especially those under the age of four, have more flexible skeletons, more relaxed muscle tonus, and a higher proportion of subcutaneous fat, which helps protect internal organs." Well,
3: this this uh, you know matches up with research I've done in the past on just sort of the durability of children. Yeah, Uh, you know, especially as parents, we often think of uh, of of young children as being just you know highly vulnerable, Mm -hmm. and in certain respects. They are, But they are also uh, – they have evolved to be durable at that stage as well yeah. and to, you know, to survive falls and stumbles and the, you know, <laughs> you know, the various kind of uh, uh, hazards that they're inevitably going to encounter at that age.
0: Mm-hmm. Also, this feature of falling might be obvious, but if you can somehow slow yourself down with some kind of parachute-like object – that's good.
3: Yeah, and no, that's something that comes up in some of the accounts I was looking at because a lot of the accounts do in, involve um, uh, skydivers, yeah. people who are, of course, putting themselves in a position like this on a regular basis, you know, actually mm-hmm. falling through the sky. And, you know, most of the time they, uh, you know, the, the, their shoots are going to work just like uh, they they hoped they would. Mm-hmm. But then when you encounter a technical problem with the shoot, Like sometimes the chute, even though the chute is failing, it is still sort of like half deploying or it's doing something to spin them around and and potentially, uh, you know, disrupt their uh, acceleration.
0: Yeah, I mean anything that is slowing you down is good. Even if it's not slowing you down as much as it's supposed to, if it's slowing you down some, that's increasing your odds. Mm -hmm. Okay, next question is a big question. Where to land? So if you accept that you can somewhat steer your fall – by the way you orient your body in the air, you might have some amount of power over exactly where you come down. Uh, and the bottom line for for where you land is that you want to increase your deceleration distance. You want to spread out your slowdown over a, a bigger distance rather than sl- slowing down and stopping all at once.
3: So if you like in a cartoon, if you could aim for the mattress factory. Exactly, yeah. That would be where you would want to land.
0: This is why landing in a net helps or Mm -hmm. something, you know. The net, like, the tension of it absorbs some of the energy of your fall and it slows down your deceleration or you decelerate over a longer distance as the net stretches when it catches you.
3: So if you could actually aim for an enormous circus tent, Mm -hmm. like, that would be (laughs) ideal. Not, I mean, and if there happened to be a net inside the circus tent for the trapeze artist, uh, you know, I guess that would help as well.
0: Right. Now, normally, there's not going to be a net net out anywhere that you would be falling. Mm -hmm. But some – there are some things that might be kind of equivalent, probably not as good as a net. Falling into trees or bushes seems to have both positives and negatives, but I think the positives might outweigh the negatives. By hitting plant matter – you increase your deceleration distance and you slow your fall more gradually because – I mean you probably are going to get very injured if you fall into plant matter. But by like hitting branches at different levels instead of stopping at the ground all at once, you slow your fall you kind of put
3: your 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 injury on the installment plan.
0: Yeah. Uh, but then also you, you – I mean there are downsides. You run the risk of being like stabbed by branches as you fall into trees. Uh, but there are people who have survived really long falls by falling into thick plant matter, into bushes or into tree limbs. Snow seems to be a very good choice. There are multiple accounts of people surviving great falls – after landing in snow, I would imagine that unpacked snow is best. Again, you want, you know, a softer thing to crash into to slow to to increase your deceleration distance. Haystacks are apparently good. And then hitting the roof of some types of human structures can be better than hitting solid ground, specifically if you think that the roof might – that you might break through the roof. Like Alan McGee crashing through the glass skylight at the train station because uh, this breakthrough point is going to slow your fall without completely stopping you all at once.
3: Yeah, or like a thatched roof would be ideal as well. Uh, You know, to bring up a a pro wrestling example here, Mm -hmm. uh, anyone who's watched the pro wrestling has probably seen somebody fall off of something through a table, Uh uh, through something like a folding table. It makes an impressive noise. It looks impressive to watch this falling body, uh, you know, destroy a table, sometimes two or three tables on the way down. Mm -hmm. But, of course, ultimately, that is breaking the fall of the wrestler.
0: Right. It would hurt them more to just go straight to the ground. Yeah. The accounts I've heard from pro wrestlers
3: of them taking bumps where they say jump off of a top rope and land just on their back Mm -hmm. uh, at the ringside, like that has been like – those have been the scarier bumps they've described where they talk about their – like feeling their organs like jostle around inside their body. Ooh,
0: that is not a feeling I, I want to feel.
3: Right. So in the same way, if you're falling off the top rope – you should aim for the tables, and uh, you know even if it's not completely kayfabe. And if you're jumping out of the, if you're falling out of that plane, you should aim for the thatched roof or the uh, or even the the, the 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 greenhouse or you know what, whatever is better than just you know, hitting just the you know an open pavement area.
0: Yeah, exactly. Again, what you want to think is something that will make you not stop all at once. Now, a big question here is actually about uh, water. there's disagreement about whether water is a good choice. Uh, Hitting water at high speed is not like jumping off the high dive. Hitting water at high speed will still cause massive injuries. It's often said that hitting water after a great fall isn't that much different from hitting concrete.
3: Right. However, I will say do a belly flop off the high dive (laughs) or actually don't do a belly flop off the high dive. But 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 just do a normal belly flop off of a normal diving board or cannonball, what have you, feel that smack of water against your body. And uh and you, you get a sense of what some of the physics we're talking about here, because that 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 smack can sting. Yeah. And we're talking a fall of like, you know, four or five feet. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh and then also with water you add the risk that even if you survive the impact, you could be injured or knocked unconscious and then you're at risk of drowning, right, because you're in the water. Right. Uh, if you have to hit water, there's also a question of how best to orient your body. I guess we can look at that along with the next question, which is how to land, not where to land. Uh, so there's conflicting advice and research indications here. There, there are very few clear takeaways except don't land on your head. Right. But to explore the discrepancies we've come across. So uh, Keppel's article introduces the difficulty in knowing the best way to position the body for impact. Uh, Keppel looks at a 1942 study in the journal War Medicine that seemed to be of the opinion that the best bet is distribution of impact pressure across the body through, quote, wide body impact. So that makes it se- sound like you'd want a belly flop, if, or maybe not belly flop, but somehow distributed across the body mm-hmm. – Uh, you know, longitudinally. Then again, there was a 1963 report by the Federal Aviation Agency that argued that survival is most likely if you get into, quote, the classic skydiver's landing stance. Feet together, heels up, flexed knees and hips. Keppel argues that studies of people uh, jumping from bridges indicate that the best way to survive hitting water is probably what's known as the pencil. So Mm -hmm. that's like... Feet first, knife like kind of entry, but obviously this doesn't always work. Uh, and he also points out the tradition of cliff divers of Acapulco who dive head first from great heights and they lock their hands together with arms outstretched over their heads to protect their heads from the impact with the water. Uh, he also advises for water landings, quote, clinch your butt. <laughs> So unfortunately, it seems like a, a jumble of conflicting advice there, and and it doesn't get any better with the other sources we were looking at. Chisholm's article consults some experts here that also are not in agreement. Uh, the 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 expert uh, we mentioned earlier, Rhett Alan, points out that for some reason. Some studies have found that human bodies seem to be generally more tolerant of G-forces in particular directions. Like NASA figured this out during some of their experiments with test pilots in the 1960s, that the body seems more tolerant of G-forces pushing from the front of the body to the back. This is referred to – and you can sort of picture this – this is referred to as eyeballs in mm. G-force as opposed to eyeballs out, up or down. Uh, other types of forces such as eyeballs down are more traumatic to the body. So
3: I hadn't really thought about this, but uh, but it makes sense. So when you when you look at various, um, like especially like supersonic aircraft, mm. you may, you, of course, you're going to have a pilot position where they need to have a forward-facing view out of the airplane. Yeah. But you may have other roles in the plane that do not require that or even, you know, do not allow a, a direct forward-facing view out of the plane. Uh-huh. And in those cases, you still have the, uh, uh, th- this particular uh, uh, individual will still be facing forward.
0: Yeah, uh, because apparently the body is more tolerant of G-forces that right. way. Uh, so given this consideration, it might seem like the best way for your body to absorb impact would be to land on your back face up. Uh, but there's a problem with that, which is that it seems like this would be more likely to generate a harder impact on the head, which mm-hmm. is exactly what you don't want to do
3: to say nothing of the spine. I mean, it's almost like right. we're not designed for
0: this kind of impact at all. Exactly. You know, it's, it's bad no matter how you do it. Uh, there, one last uh, source they look at here is that Chisholm mentions a study by the Highway Safety Research Institute from 1977, which looked at over 100 case studies of fall victims and note that these were short-distance falls, probably not terminal velocity falls. But the study found that landing feet first gives you the best survival odds. Hmm. So basically, here we've heard almost every different kind of possible recommendation for how to orient the body for landing except land on your head. You don't want to land on your head. I would have to say that this seems like an area in which uh, the science is not settled. So when we were uh, you know, looking into this, I have to say that the first thing that came into my mind
3: – was a Kids in the Hall sketch really? Yeah, I I used to to be a big uh, Kids in the Hall uh, fan just because it was you know it was on TV all the time, oh, so yeah. I was always watching Kids in the Hall.
0: I loved Kids in the Hall. Oh yeah,
3: yeah it had some some wonderful uh, sketches in there. Uh, but there was a particular sketch from season one titled "The Odds," uh, during which a bunch of skydivers are encountering just a series of fatal parachute mishaps, one after the other. And uh, and finally, uh, uh, Bruce McCulloch's character is the last one left on the plane uh, that, that hasn't jumped. And he's there having a discussion with Mark McKinney's character. And uh, Bruce's character begins discussing the odds of this series of terrible jumps occurring the way they occurred. And he finally uh, reaches an illogical conclusion. So uh, Bruce's character, you know, says, says, uh, says, uh, says, all right, all right, all right. You know, it's like, OK, well, what are the, the odds of all this happening? What are the odds of four individuals plummeting to their deaths with uh, – uh, one of them being on the very first jump, two of them being twins, and then one winning the lottery. Like all of these, these odds would make it just, in, in, just insurmountable. And then Mark's character tells him what well, would be roughly 63 million to one. And uh, Bruce's character says, quote, not good enough. It's these parachutes. I've been watching them defy the odds all day. I'm jumping without one. And then he takes off his parachute and he says, he asks, what are the odds of a guy jumping from 10,000 feet and hitting the pavement running? And Mark tells him two to one. And then Bruce says, good, I'm off. And he says, I'm feeling lucky. And he jumps and he's saying, it's working, it's working, it's working. And then there's a splat sound. Right. But uh, so, so I have to say, I've never given this scenario a lot of scrutiny. But I do think of it every single time someone discusses hitting the ground running on a topic. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine um, uh, Bruce McCulloch, uh, um, you know, plummeting to his death with his optimism in mind. And I, I think that the skit is kind of a fun send-up of our basic inability to comprehend large numbers or or the odds of any given scenario.
0: Well, it makes me think about that old thing where it's like if you're in a in a plane that's going down or an elevator that's falling, if you jump at the last second, then you'll be fine. Uh, That's not how it works, is it?
3: No, not not at all. And and by the way, I looked to see, I was thinking, well, Kids in the Hall has been out a while Uh and people are always doing, you know, kind of uh, interesting like physics-based blog posts or even full-fledged papers Mm -hmm. exploring a particular topic. And I haven't seen anybody, you know, uh, myth bust uh, this particular sketch yet. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, If I am wrong, someone please send me in uh, some myth busting on this. Uh, But I think the basic idea idea is um, hitting the ground running would not work, and this line of thinking does fall in, like you said, with the idea of, well, could you jump out of a crashing plane right before it hits the ground and survive? And this question, these questions in general tend to ignore the fact that you're not li- merely aboard a falling plane, you are falling with the plane. right And if you jump off the plane, you're still falling at the same pace uh, with the, the same acceleration, especially at high speeds, there's virtually no scenario in which the, the jump is going to make a, you know, a huge difference. Mm-hmm. But when I was uh, looking around uh, about this, I did run across uh, another uh, account of survival from a fall of a great height, uh, a similar scenario to some of the ones we've discussed already uh, It was the, it's the story a uh, two thousand and six survival story of a twenty five year old experienced experienced jumper who encountered a series of shoot malfunctions from a fifteen thousand foot jump and uh, there there's an interview uh, uh, with this guy uh, on vice uh, and uh, basically he tried. Everything, uh, you know, he had a very logical fall. You know, it's where he's like, he's deploying the first shoot, doesn't work. Okay, deploying the second shoot, uh, does not work, and uh, and then he kind of makes a rushed logical piece with death at that point, where he's like, okay, I've done everything I can do, nothing else I can do, I'm I'm probably going to die, and he essentially goes limp and falls in, and and uh, impacts in a small blackberry bush, like not a huge bush, but you know a fairly small one by his description. Uh-huh. He ends up shattering his left foot like really badly, uh, but he survived. Uh, he didn't hit the ground vertically uh, but and so so the impact was you know deflected through his body and in the vice interview, he recommended his recommendations for falling, which he said ultimately he 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 didn't have any logical. Uh, strategy in mind. He just was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm, I'm hitting the ground. Uh, but he said in retrospect, he would say don't tense up, you know, in the same... And then we see this uh, in discussion of car crashes as well. Like mm-hmm. like don't tense your body for the impact if, if you at all have any say so in this. And then also uh, land in a shrub or a tree if you can, which falls in line with uh, some of the advice and uh, analysis we've looked at already.
0: Yeah, well, I'd say top line takeaway today... Don't jump out of an airplane without a parachute. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't fall out of an airplane without a parachute if you can help it. If you are in this scenario, see if you can land in like some snow and try not to land on your head.
3: Right. And uh, as for the kids in the hall method, I guess, you know, the the jury's still out, but that's probably not going to be your best strategy either. All right, so there you have it. uh the fun thing about this episode is that I know we have some skydivers out there. We oh, have yeah. to have some skydivers. I think
0: we've heard from skydivers before have we yeah, all right I well, now so. it's
3: really their time to shine because I want to you know we want to hear anything just about your 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 thoughts on this particular topic. certainly, if you know anybody who has a survival story like this or have one yourself to share, we would love to hear that. but just in general, like your your thoughts on on the, you know, the feeling, uh, the sensation of, um, of, of descending through the air at these, these uh, great speeds and with these great, great distances. What is that like? Uh, we would love to hear
0: from you. What does it feel like to hit terminal velocity when yeah. you free freefall?
3: Yeah. Where do you fall in on our various descriptions of you know, feeling weighted versus feeling weightless? In the meantime, check out stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's a mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of this show. If you want to chat about the show with other listeners, uh, there is a Facebook group called uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind Discussion Module. Do a search on that platform and you will find it. And uh, hey, if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Uh, and make sure you have subscribed, not only to uh, stuff to blow your mind, but, hey, the other podcast that Joe and I also host, which is called Invention. It's one episode a week. Each episode is uh, a different invention or at least an episode on a particular invention or a, a sort of a train of thought with inventions, looking at basically uh, human techno history, all this weird technology that, that humans uh, leave behind and what it says about us, what it says about uh, uh, human existence before the advent of these different inventions.
0: Huge thanks, That's- always to our excellent audio producers seth nicholas johnson and maya cole if you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your
1: Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.
2: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild